Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I am Annabelle from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and today I am your host. Today I'm joined by John, Isaac and Yaya to discuss tech challenges in the NHS. The views expressed by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their NHS organisation. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do and what your biggest passion is currently. John, do you want to kick us off? Hi there, uh, my name is John Akello. I work as the Digital Compliance Officer at Northeast London Foundation Trust. Um, I'm in charge of the DTAC process, which is the Digital Technology Assessment Criteria form, which enables us to actually qualify um, our prospective vendors and new contractors and make sure that um, they're compliant with a lot of the um, data protection policies, security policies, um, looking at their clinical records and things like this before we disseminate products out to our staff and um, to patients as well. Um, I've been doing the job for about um, three years in total and seven months in my current role. And my main passion, um, as well as technology, of course, is always um, AI, future advancements, and also looking at new products that are coming out in the next couple of years as well. Brilliant, thanks, John. Isaac, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, uh, my name is Dr. Isaac Anakimia and I'm an independent uh, senior business consultant and transformational expert. Um, I have over 13 years experience working in the NHS, handling programs, projects, digital transformation, um, large scale projects. Um, I've worked from the KNAs all the way to um, um, uh, um, healthcare practices, um, trusts, Mental Health Trust, um, and I've been involved in a lot of things. Uh, my current passion at the moment is looking at large-scale change and transformation, especially in the ever-evolving world and uh, rapid technological growth. So using things like AI, virtual reality, RPA for automation of processes. Um, that is my current passion. I believe that with sleeker and leaner processes technology is an enabler to moving organizations forward so that is currently my passion and i look forward to working with many people who are interested in that thank you brilliant thanks very much and finally yaya hand over to you to introduce yourself Hi, I'm Yahya Jassat. I currently work at Croydon Health Services as a project manager i've been project manager for a number of years at different trusts um my I suppose chief responsibility at the moment is to implement the workforce systems or the systems that the trust has procured, but using that as a, a central uh, staging point to implement and automate a number of processes to support and facilitate, as well as empower medics and dental staff uh, throughout their experience as uh, clinicians within the workforce, using their uh, the data for where they are and what they do to serve business intelligence um, so that strategically and operationally the trust is in a good position. Um, my current passions, similar to John and Isaac, I'm into API, RPA um, uh, integration within the trust with the view that a lot of the systems that we use need to be bridged through better communication so that we can use that data 
to exchange between systems and 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 serve the interests of the trust, uh, you know, under, underline and underscore to deliver better patient care. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so now that we've established a context to each of you, we'll move on to the topic in focus. So you've all, you all have a question or a statement on tech challenges in the NHS. As usual, I'll work around the room, so I'll pose the question and then I'll ask each of you the reasons behind it. Each of you will then have the opportunity to give your take on the situation as well. So we'll start with yours, John. So your question was, what gaps in the digital healthcare space do you feel should be a focus point for either developers, entrepreneurs or medical graduates? This could be related to a pressing current issue or a future challenge in the next five to 10 years. So do you want to tell me a little bit about where this question came from? Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Um, so basically, when I first started work for the NHS, I was working as a telecoms engineer and we were deploying over 4,000 new devices, doing upgrades and things like this. So it was a really big project and it started around about 2000, um, all the way up to my first project where ended in two, the end of 2001. Um, and it was, sorry, not 2001, 2021. And uh, it was one of those moments where you got an opportunity to really meet a lot of clinicians, doctors, nurses, um, staff on the ground and find out what their day-to-day -day life is just by general conversation. Of course, they're there to get their new device, but it gives you a good opportunity to gauge what's their life like on the ground. And the reason why I did that at the time was, it first of all, side out as general conversation. But what happened was you ended up having the same conversations with people. And one of the things that always kept up cropping up was the amount of time that people were spending filling in forms um, and um, swapping between systems on a regular basis, um, the challenges they had with using the tech as well and getting the things that they needed from it. So every single person, of course, had different needs for the mobile devices. Some people wanted it primarily for recording their, um, their sessions. Some of them wanted just to keep up with their emails, et cetera. And after doing a lot of conversations, and I'm talking about myself, I met about, um, let's say about 1,500 to 2,000 people. And the number one thing that they felt that could actually help them in their day-to-day -day life was something to actually cut down the amount of time they spend filling in forms. And this was something that when I was looking at new products now in my current role that were coming through that we were actually trying to um, approve, there weren't that many products designed for actually helping staff on their day-to-day. -day. Yes, there's great products for um, clinical work, et cetera, which is very important, of course. But one of the things that people were saying was if they had something that cut down, that gave them at least an extra half hour, an hour free in their day to actually sit down and talk to their patients and find out a bit more about what they're going through or just spending time one-on-one, -on -one, even just recouping for themselves, because, of course, a lot of clinicians have very stressful roles. So one of the things that I'm looking out for as new organizations are developing new AI systems, et cetera, which companies are out there looking at um, systems integrations into current um, products that they use, such as Rio, System One, and things like this, that actually help staff reduce the amount of time they spend on those systems, but enable them to stay, stay as if, if um, productive as possible, but cut down their time doing that as well. Because one thing you don't teach people when they're, well, nurses for example and um, when at university is this is the amount of paperwork it's going to be a part of your life <laughs> you know they spend so much time focused on the medical which is obviously very important as well but that side of things is left out so by the time they do the job they get this huge amount of stress and they get really overwhelmed and i think um for the sake of their workload and also their mental health and ability to actually do the job even better keeping an eye out for products which will actually 
cut down the amount of time they spend um, doing um, casework, writing up casework, etc. It's something that I'm definitely passionate about, keeping an eye out for. I haven't seen anything myself so far, but I feel like those are the little tiny things that um, I can actually do as part of my role to actually hopefully bring um, tangible value um, to a lot of people who, in terms of when we're talking about tech, they're overlooked. You know, because obviously our job is to make sure that we are looking after patients and we are improving healthcare. But we also need to think about how we support the people on the ground providing that as well. That's great. Thanks, John. <laughs> Isaac, do you want to, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think John makes an excellent point. Um, one of the things that we forget when we look at the NHS is that the NHS, the number one business in NHS is healthcare. We are there to provide healthcare. Forget all the politics, all the dramas that go with it. The number one business, the key reason why it exists is provide healthcare. Now, if you look at any business, any structure, there is always a main product at our NHS. The product we sell is healthcare. Now, everything that a business should do in terms of a strategy or development should always be around facilitating the development or the improvement of the primary product to reach out to your customers. So in our case, the national populace. So healthcare. Now the key drivers behind the healthcare are the doctors and the clinicians and the health practitioners. That means enabling and facilitating them to do that better, quicker, faster, more agile is the primary focus of what a digital strategy or infrastructure should be about. It should be there. So when you look at the NHS, when we talk about the platinum multitude of systems that run out there, what you will find in any NHS organization I've worked with has been that the basics, the core basics, is what is missing in the development of uh, technology. So as John pointed out, things like auto-population of forms, you know, RP, you know, being able to use that to reduce the amount of time that's being developed on the system. Um, all them, I talked about auto-population. I mean, things like basic system flows, just understanding integration at a very basic level between systems are some of the key things that enable will enable the, the, the clinicians do well. But one of the key fundamental things that get forgotten in all of that is that in any product service activity that's being developed in an organization, you need to think about the process flow that underpins all of this. I mean, there is a major argument at the moment in, in the world of the academics that say technology is a stimuli or as a catalyst. But the truth about it is that technology remains an enabler to delivering service. So when you look at it from that point of view, you need to go back to the basics. What's the organization doing? What are the clinicians doing? What services do we have? What systems do they need? How does this increase or meet the strategic objective of that? Whether it's a mental health trust, whether it's a GP surgery, how does that deliver that? And when you can do that and map the end-to-end -end cycle of that, the basic underlying system that delivers that basic purpose and process becomes the most valuable and fundamental to, to delivering of that service. And we're back into the territory of auto-population RP. The administrative overhead being cut down makes their lives much better. That's great. Thanks, Isaac. Yaya, what do you think about this? I mean, we're harking back to what Isaac said. For me, I think in, from my experience when we're dealing with, say, medical grads or you know, trainee doctors who are coming into a trust, 
you know, there's a number of things impacting their decision to choose a particular trust. You know, you, you're moving from one location to the next. And and one of the things is the, I suppose, you know, thing that could put them off from that experience from the get-go is starting onboarding onto a new trust and having to chase, you know, a forms for this, um, you know, uh, IT piece of equipment to be set up and, and delivered to them on time. You know, just having the ability to put in study leave requests and annual leave requests ahead of time, having view of their rosters ahead of time. Some things that we take for granted in terms of what a system uh, makes available, but, you know, it can have a massive impact on their decision and the trust ability to retain them for a lot longer than just one or two years. And that experience in itself is a very key uh, part of what technology can or should be able to do to make life easier for somebody who's coming in um, starting new place, good experience, seeing everything what they need to do and get on with their role. Um, if it becomes something that's getting in the way of them getting in their ro role, then, you know, we failed, you know, that, that solution that we thought that we produced or provided for them has not done its job. And then, you know, some really hard questions need to be asked around, you know, is it fit for purpose? And I think for me, that's a big thing. You know, at the end of the day, whatever we pr provide in terms of solutions, whether that's a workflow or even a, a off-the-shelf product for onboarding, it has to be able to do the four core fundamentals or the basic things in order to empower staff to come in, pick up their role and get on with it on a day-to-day -day basis and not hamper them at any point. Isaac, hand over back to you. Yes, I think just picking up from what um, Yaya has just said, um, when you think about it in, in, in a nutshell, the key thing there is being able to facilitate the work that needs to be done. When it comes to technology, technology is advancing in such a rapid rate that, I mean, latest technology shows that you can actually, over a 5G or 6G network, carry out surgeries from a different country. So technology is advancing. There is uh, There's technology in the healthcare space that's being developed all across the globe that will do wonders. You know, you have uh, 3G scanners for babies. You can literally get full-scale prints of babies even before they're born. So when it comes to technology, technology is not the problem. It's not missing. It's the implementation and adoption of the technology that is where the real challenges in the NHS exist. And when you talk about how do we make technology work? What do we do to help um, organizations? Then the honest truth is that one needs to have first and foremost an over overview map of where you are going to then be able to weed out the administrative blockers. And then through that process, understand the technology that can be used to take those mundane tasks away and leave the professionals to using their experience and their skills to do what they are there to do, which is living elsewhere. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, John, has that answered your question? Have you got any, anything else to add? Um, that's actually fantastic because I think um, one thing that um, for any um, product owners who are listening to this podcast, uh, while you're designing and thinking about how you're going to be um, implemented across the NHS, you're absolutely right. It's great to think about how we're going to be looking at the um, administrative blockers um, and also 
really caring about the people that are using the product. Yes, of course, they care to a degree, of course, when you're designed to use the interface, et cetera, and, um, and the clinical work that's going to take place. Um, but putting it to a point where how can you reduce the time? And, and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, great answers. Brilliant. Thank you. So, Isaac, we'll move on to your question. So your question was, what are the challenges they encounter in selecting and effectively implementing new technology and how do you overcome it? So do you want to just give a bit of backstory as to where this question came from? Yes. So um, we, I recently had a debate with one of the organizational leads and the key question around it was um, in trying to evaluate technology, um, there were a number of solutions, as we all do when you're buying a new solution, you would do an auctions appraisal, you will go out there, you will go with a strategy, you will look for, you will go through a framework, you will put that out there. People would uh, bid for the job, you will go through an ITT, you will select a provider, and at the end of the day, you would pick a supplier for the organization, and then, as far as the organization is concerned, that's the end of the problem. Everything should go away. We now have a solution. But one of the biggest things which I alluded to earlier is that technology does not finish until it is adopted. So my question then poses in a wider spectrum, am I just the one thinking that this is a weird idea or weird concept, or is this a general experience for, you know, workforce and all the other solutions that are being out there. What are your experiences when you look at the technology that you now have in hand? And when you look at the benefit realizations, they don't match the business case. Yeah, yeah, I want to kick us off. What do you think about this? Um, so there's a very famous um, e-rostering system that a lot of trusts use. Um, and it was bought, you know, to the market many 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 years ago several years ago and at the time i think it was very much focused on you know agenda for change stuff but through the the years of adoption and 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 the need within the the um the market to start expanding to other staff grades um it was thought at the time that it was going to be fit for purpose to be used in there but you know things have happened you know in the last few years where it's you know, put in question whether that this product itself has the ability to do that. So naturally, you know, the, they go back to the drawing board. They want to put in new development ideas and requests to to make it fit for purpose. And therefore, they create kind of byproducts that you know come with its own individual costs, etc. And 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 then they kind of connect that together and offer it as a um, a, a greater you know offering or a product. I think the biggest thing for us, uh, you know, working within the trust that we do. Um, and, and going through the decision-making process is that any product that's, you know, offered to us uh, via vendor, it has to be flexible enough to be able to pivot in terms of what it's delivering today, but then can change due to the changing nature of and the evolution of, of healthcare. Take COVID, for example. Um, a number of the workforce systems that we used were not fit for purpose because it was not giving us the data, you know, in terms of what we needed to know who was where and, and, and you know, who was, and which areas were being affected and where we could reassign and, and redeploy staff. So how do we go? How do we go about that? Now, do we, you know, have to go through the whole process of putting a request in and getting the, 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 the third party provider to develop a new solution, you know, on the fly and, and provide that for us? So by all means, you know, by no means rather, I don't think, you know, a piece of software that's given to us is to be all or end all and, and 
solves anything until we have a new problem. Um, and there's always going to be new challenges within healthcare. Um, so I think, you know, when we go through that process um, of evaluating what's the best possible fit for our solution at the time, there has to be that consideration that there's degree of flexibility between us and the vendor that whenever we need something, there is capacity to meet our demands at very short notice, but, you know, within, you know, flexible and within within reason and within the kind of service level agreement or contract agreement we have in place. Thank you. John, I'll hand over to you. What do you think? Well, it's, it's, it's actually a very good question because um, the short answer from my side would be that my role is an attempt to actually answer that question. Um, We've always been auditing organizations that we use, whether it's the project management team or the procurement team or the business management team, et cetera, doing their own individual um, checks, finding out um, the different criteria they need to go through in order to evaluate the um, feasibility of a particular product within the NHS. But it's always been a very um, um, cumbersome job. It's very hard and arduous. You have, like like um, like it's been mentioned before already, sometimes you have to go out, loads of phone calls, emails, et cetera. So with... Northeast London, we had the DTAC process already in place that we took from NH NHS England, but it wasn't to a dedicated person or a dedicated role. The problem with that we found was that um, doing an audit of an organization actually took a very, very long time. Now, let's assume you want, you need a product, you find out you need it for your team, you have a doctor, there's something that you need for um, an, an eating disorder service or something like that. You think it's going to be great it's going to make a big difference to your patients and to their lifestyles etc by the time you request it and get it in your hands you're talking about a year to a year and a half you know and that and the longest part of that process is our DTAC process so i came in place in order to do three things reduce the time spent actually doing audits and compliance checks of organizations making sure it's done thoroughly though okay because still quite a lot of stuff to be done um that in turn, of course, will reduce the cost, which means that people's budgets can be a little bit more streamlined into making it more effective for the patients on the on the back end. And then lastly, having a process in place for the future um, development of products. So, for example, make sure that our um, legacy audits have a process in place and we're keeping an eye on organizations that change over time, because that's another thing that people don't really realize. Sometimes, for example, organizations might be around for like three to four years in that time they get bought out by someone else and then the whole structure changes. Sometimes when the structure that we visibly see changes, it also means things like um, the security protocols change, their server, um, dedicated server hubs, um, hubs change as well. And that causes itself its own problems. So yes, there are many problems that people encounter in regards to getting new products. What I'm here to do is to make sure that it's done in a way that it's not just focused on making sure that we cover all aspects of our compliance process, everything from looking at the security protocols they run through, um, little things like the cyber essentials, uh, make sure that the hazard logs are in check. Um, some organizations as well and co new companies, for example, are straight out of university. So some of these young people um, haven't been in the workforce before. They've had a great idea and they've got a lot of skills and experience in their medical field, but how to get themselves structured in um, a clinically safe um, perspective is something they've never encountered before. Of course, they've always had it in the back of their mind. They're, they're professionals, but I'm there to make sure that they're thinking about all the elements that they haven't thought about before as well. Now, as well as my role being as part of a solution, one thing that I've also noticed is that I'm able to actually look at 
extra elements that aren't actually included in the DTAP process. So finding out, for example, that if organizations have a good training program in place to make sure that the staff that are actually going to be using it have a support mechanism after it leaves my hands. Um, because a lot of times, of course, we can approve anything we want, but if it's not actually supported really well for the, for the ground staff, then it's going to end up being a lot more useless than useful. You know, um, the one thing we don't want is spending a lot of money on a product and people use it for a couple of months and then they slide off and go back to the old habits. We wanted to make a visible change and have it something that um, staff members buy into and actually feel that the people that have approved it have thought through everything, thought through all the different challenges that take place. And we're also keeping an eye on it over time. So my audit, for example, um, I do a legacy audit for every single product every single year. So our first round has already started. So even organizations that we've been using for the last 10 to 15 years, they've never had an audit before. It's my job to get that process started. And that involves creating relationships with them and make sure that questions that have never been asked before, they're challenged on now, you know, because if we don't do that, we're going to really miss out on making sure that the NHS is properly supported long-term in the next 10, 15 years. Great. Thanks, John. Isaac, did you have something else to add? Yeah, it's just picking up on, on John's point there about um, the time between when the request is asked and when we actually implement it. You know, there's something called the DCAV model, which is data information knowledge and action. So it, it, it in this module, it, it model, it talks about the longer you leave information and transform transform that information to knowledge. If you leave a longer time by the if there is a distance of time between when knowledge is accrued and action is taken, there is a lot that can have changed, that would have changed or could have changed within that period of activity that could render the knowledge that you had and the action that you are about to take invalid. So when you think about that, it means that with the work that John is doing as an example, making sure that the distance between data collected and action taken is as minimal as possible means that you're making the activities or the action that you take relevant to the today. Now, the one thing that gets missed out when we look at digital projects is the end users. The end users are usually at different or varying levels of digital maturity. So making sure that beyond just the solution being good or fit for purpose, is actually making sure that the users can use the solution to do their jobs. They would use the solution in varying levels of experience or day-to-day -day activities required of them. But it is ensuring that as part of the adoption, which is usually the hardest part, that's the change of people and culture. That part needs to also be factored into the full adoption cycle to ensure that we can gain new values of knowledge or digital assets from using the solution to improve the organization and that's just what i wanted to add to that mix yeah yeah do you have something else to add as well not much about adding but actually a question directed at isaac um and john you could weigh in as well around this but you mentioned about the users and and they're the key part or cog within each process because they're using on a day-to-day -day basis they're seeing whether a product is you know doing what it's supposed to do and if it's not uh, you know, in most cases on the NHS shop floor, a lot of it is just, oh, it doesn't do this. And then nothing gets done about it, right? It's not recorded. There's no actions taken. And like you said, 
that knowledge, it gets, you know, it goes into the ether and we forget about it and we, we plod along. I mean, whose responsibility would it be then? Or would it be prudent to put measures in place or a team in place? And like John, you know, your, your team is, you know, set up uh, specifically for that. But where we, you know, collect user stories uh, and sometimes when we say user stories, it's always pre-implementation because we're always gathering that to create the product. But when we have the product, surely user stories are still relevant because they continue to uh, evolve the product so that it still fit for purpose, right? Is there st- would they would it be prudent then to have a a body or a team that continually um, invites key users or champions within an organization or you know who use the product on a day to day basis to collect that piece of knowledge? to you know process that and say what can we do with this uh, and go back to the third party vendors as a, a, you know via their idea portals or whether we're sitting down with their account managers etc and the product team uh, or product managers i'd be interested to know your thoughts on that Isaac will go to you first and then John will come to you so um one of the key things you need to remember is that you know with with Transformation projects and change projects. I will I will just try to talk about the two differently. With the change project, you're literally just trying to implement a change, a short step, a short scale change, do something quick, get the organization moving, remove, remove blockers, you know, on-call wheels, whatever you do. But when you're talking about implementation of technology that's supposed to facilitate new value, then you need to be able to, as as part of the process. We all know when you do the five case model in the NHS, you have to talk about the return on investment and your benefit realization. Now, one of the things that always gets missed or gets missed frequently is the benefit realization plan. So when you have a plan, when you have your benefits mapped out, there needs to be a process in handing over those benefits to BAU that as the organizational lead or the SROs, somebody has to be responsible for ensuring that once the project goes into BAU, those benefits are continually monitored, tracked, and realized. Now, in that process, one of the challenges with the NHS is that with people coming and going, sometimes things get lost in the process. But this is where the high-level strategic view of, um, let's say, from a digital management, uh, digital PMO, you're looking from a digital PMO, there is an overview of the projects that have gone live. You know where the BAU is, you know who is responsible for what. And part of the yearly accountability is to go back to those things to then say, we put in this project last year, there was a five-year benefit realization plan that goes with it. Where are we on that? Can you pull up the tracker? Who are the people responsible for this and who are the people? So there is, what you will find is that there is a, relationship between bottom-up and top-down management of benefits. We need to get into the culture of ensuring that day-to-day users understand the benefits of the solution and that they know that part of the process is to realize the benefits of the solution. In the same vein, managers and senior leadership should be able to track those things using benefit trackers to then say who are the people responsible for realizing benefits and then be able to report on them using this tracking system. Now, as you rightly put it, so things don't get lost. Is that year-on-year review of strategy, year-on-year review of documentation and going back to key um, people within the organization to understand what has been set 
in the precedence. The challenge we have in the NHS is because of the funding structure and because of the change in prioritization of the organization. So for example, one year you are focused on development of innovative ideas, and then there's suddenly a budget cut as we saw during COVID. And then suddenly you are no longer innovating, you are now cost saving. What that does is the first thing you do is any product or any innovation in play gets put on ice and sometimes never recovers. So the the thing the thinking behind it then becomes as an organization, in terms of the leadership buying, in terms of the relational buying, there is a cascade, you know, using a scorecard method or something that says, these are the things we've put in place. It's a five-year strategy. We need to complete this. Otherwise, we don't realize these benefits because the benefits are key to cost savings, efficiency, name it, and so on. So if those things are not monitored and actively looked after through a delegated structure, then we lose that. And that's really how we manage that cycle um, in ensuring that one, the users are gaining benefit from it, two, ensuring that those user stories are picked up, but three, that there is a two-way feedback structure, both the management and senior management to say, okay, we need an improvement of this or this system is not working. And four, the management, the relationship between the product, um, the organization, the NHS organization and the suppliers. Um, as John alluded to earlier on, that relationship needs to be in there for the flexibility of the solution. So as part of your contracts or whichever framework, especially using the, the, the government frameworks now, there are always clauses in there for innovation, for adaptation that we need to then take account for and put KPIs around and ensure that that is covered as, a past, as part of the final contract with fine when the system is procured. And these are just some of the key things that can be put in place to manage that process. Thank you. John, what, are your, what were your thoughts? Um, I think, first of all, um, Isaac covered everything absolutely amazingly. He's absolutely right on all fronts. Um, the only small little things I'll probably add on there is it's in, since I've been in my role, I think what you've actually brought out is so critical to making sure that everything's not just um, checked correctly before we implement a product, but also monitored and making sure that we are getting the feedback. I think the three ways that we kind of do it at Nelft is, of course, at, right at the beginning, I have to make sure that my relationship with um, providers is spot on. Um, timely um, communications, um, make sure that meetings are run well, and also their relationship with our directors is monitored and done in um in a productive way as well, because of course that's going to be something that even though we're starting now and I'm only going to be speaking to them for a couple of months, I'm going to need to come back to them year on year. Staff are going to need to use them for um, future trainings, etc., and product updates, etc. So we need to make sure we start off well. And if I get it wrong, we're going to have problems in the long run. So yes, of course, it's something that I deeply care about. Um, while we ma maintaining um, a little bit of a um, uh, arm's length, of course, because we've got to remain unbiased in everything that we do. Um, I think another cultural element at Nelft, which I think we do really well, is a lot of our managers and directors, they are very um, approachable and visible people. Now, I've worked in all different types of jobs and organisations where people like to be cocooned in their own little role. They want to just stay safe, do what they're doing. They don't want to get their hands dirty. And one of the things I've really loved about not just enough that I think the majority of the NHS is like this in a sense where nobody ever says that's not my job you know and I really really love that because it means that we're able to pull together when we need to um, solve problems and find solutions and we're not 
um, enabling nurses and clinicians, et cetera, to feel afraid to actually bring up challenges and issues that they come across. You know, if let's say, for example, there's, an, there's something that I overlook, which causes a problem a year or two down the line. It's really important that um, anyone who experiences an issue feels comfortable to bring it up and the person who's responsible for it they're able to actually learn from their mistakes um find solutions and corrections as well and actually make sure that the life cycle of the product and the patient care is what we care about the most you know it's not about um slapping someone on the wrist or causing more problems it's about finding solutions as quickly as possible because of course like isaac said the time frame from um the idea to inception is important, and also the time frame in the life the life um, the life cycle of the product is also very important as well. And so we we don't only allow people to talk to our directors on a regular basis. When, for example, someone raises a ticket or um, gives a call to IT corporate in regards to we're having a problem with this on this particular device, and um, the ticket gets raised, um, we do reports that we send out to different people to actually look through. So, um, for example, I was tasked with looking through um, the, the ticket issues that we had over 2002 in terms of people having their email on their mobile phone, which is their work mobile phone, of course, taking what they felt was a long time, okay, to load up. It seems insignificant, but the two or three days I spent looking through all the complaints and all the issues, we found that it was just one comms that was required to let people know that they could go through their settings and change the load up screen of the animations just to make it feel a bit faster, right? Because because one thing we didn't realize was these people were iPhone users. They weren't used to Android devices. This wasn't, this wasn't something that we'd considered. And it seems like such a small nothing, but you've got to remember it changes the experience of the people on the ground when they know that their um, complaints are being heard and something's coming back to them with a solution, you know, and it's not just going to be lost in the um, lost in the fog, you know? So yeah, I, th I think you, build up, you bring up a very important point. And these are the different ways we're trying to improve it and trying to make sure that we keep an eye on what's going on on the ground as well and respect the people who are there <laughs> brilliant thank you all um and finally yeah yeah i'll uh you had a few questions so we'll try and get through um we'll try and get through them all so your first one was what are the challenges you encounter when implementing workforce into a new system um so do you want to give a bit um a background about that question sure yeah i mean from my experience you know it like I said, it, it, I've said before, like when, when you talk about workforce systems, that there's a lot of layers to that. It, it can mean rostering, it could be payroll, it could be onboarding. There's a lot of factors, you know, education, etc. I think the biggest um, challenges I've encountered, you know, when we've implemented processes or even systems around this is the, you know, the requirement sometimes to um, develop kind of APIs or RPA for that matter to link uh, multiple systems that sit independently. So we have multiple systems, but they just don't communicate. And communication, you know, is a challenge itself in healthcare outside of the technological sphere. But when we bring that into the, the domain of technology, it's one of the key things that we as trusts fall, you know, flat on our face uh, with all the time. So in terms of the interoperability aspect of it, you know, what are the challenges, you know, other you know individuals or my peers through their experiences what are the challenges they faced when they've had to piece together uh, a you know a proposal to bring multiple systems together using an api or an rpa uh, solution 
um, and, and, and just get their thoughts on that. Perfect. Isaac, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, you'll be pleased to know that it's not limited to the NHS. It is a nationwide problem. In fact, it's a global problem, especially when you're dealing with um, governmental or public service organizations. The reason being that, again, if, if you remember what I said earlier about why are you doing what you're doing? What are you trying to achieve? I mean, it's such a basic question, but it is the root of everything. You know, the Chinese, there's this thing called the five whys in, in, you know, that the Chinese invented where you ask the first why, you have to keep asking why to get to the fifth why, and then you get to the bottom of the problem. So if you think about it, public se sector organizations are driven by uh, audits, not profits. So by nature, we are reactive, not proactive. Um, so I, I've worked with an organization where they've tried to implement, we were trying to do some work around streamlining the operational system, the operational services to define products and to be in a better position to delegate and subcontract jobs to lower levels of the organization. The challenge we had was in trying to streamline those processes, the finance system and the HR system were not talking to each other. The codes between one system and the other wasn't done. And then in trying to understand the workforce between A and B and the capacity within the organization to do some capacity planning, we couldn't because the codes between the one HR system and the uh, scheduling system were completely different. So I had a, uh, I had someone go through that using uh, Excel to try and extrapolate and you know work through that data to get to the point. The point of that is this, that sometimes because of the evolutionary nature of public sector organizations, they start off one way and they head in other directions. So what you then have is silos of working and silos of technology. Now, those silos of technology, sometimes it is actually more efficient and more effective to scrap everything and just go for one system that can do so much. The problem is, on paper, it looks cheaper to integrate. But integrating means having to understand every single system, to understand the code that sits behind every single system, to streamline the data and to standardize the data so that they can talk to each other before we start testing and implementing, and all that is time that is being paid for. However, by understanding the key goal of the organization, knowing that technology has since advanced to have a single solution that can do rostering, that can do scheduling, that can connect with finance systems, do payroll, by going that way might look expensive in the initial capital outlay, but proves to be much cheaper in the long run when you think of the benefit realization that comes at the end. But because of the nature of the stimuli, it's either external because NHS England has said, you need to do this and get stunned by yesterday. We never have enough time to do that planning. So we find ourselves constantly in a knee-jerk reaction to everything that comes out trying to implement that solution. So I think this is back to the fundamental of what are we trying to achieve? Do we have an overview of where we are in the organization. You know, NHS, I, I must say this, the NHS is a beautiful organization. I mean, we are privileged in the UK to have the NHS. And the NHS has been around for 70 odd years plus. Now, you can think about the amount of changes that, has ha that have happened in those times. 
over the years to where we are now and the legacy technology that we have over the years. I mean, once I was doing a transformation piece of work and we were trying to move some software to the new domain, and we found that that software was running off two Dell 260 machines sitting in the server room on a rack and that the suppliers of that solution had since retired. So we couldn't get rid of those solutions. We had to put in a VPN and some remote software just to keep that system running, even though it had breached every technological security protocol. And that's the challenge you find with trying to integrate solutions. So sometimes it is worth taking a moment to stop and look across the organization, understand where the organization is and where it's trying to get to. It's, it's hard work, but it pays off in the long run. Do that piece of work, know the staff you have, um, look at the gains that you're trying to gain from it, and then work out um, through our business case model to understand is comparing a do-nothing, uh, an option to replace the whole thing or integrate that then becomes necessary. But also remembering the time and efforts that is required to bring 10 different systems together to achieve one goal. Sometimes it never really works out, but that's that's the challenge you will always face um, irrespective of what you do because of the history behind the systems. Thanks, Isaac. John, what are your thoughts? Um, Isaac, again, thank you. That's really, really insightful. Um, I think I can probably give like a, a little bit of a shorter answer around it as well in regards to um, my experience so far, of course. Um, one of the things in regards to what I do is one of the questions in our DTAC process is um, their API protocols and how we can, what they um, connect into the products that we're looking at and um, what their future solutions are as well. Now, this is actually a really good way of making sure that we can um, isolate people who haven't thought about it and who haven't considered um, the necessity for making themselves and the data that they do collect and provide for that particular service or for that particular product available for other systems. Now, that's one thing that we can do because obviously we can provide that information to um, our programmers and um, our coding teams um, to assist where possible. But also another thing that we're able to do right from the beginning before we even procure a product is looking at what other services and products, um, services or um, care infrastructure do we have that could benefit from something? So just because, for example, a particular team um, wants a particular product doesn't mean that it cannot be related to something that HR is doing. Um, I had, um, for example, a, a staff member um, who does work with um, children and does at the moment um, online training sessions, et cetera. And she wanted a particular, I don't want to name the product, of course, while I'll describe it nonetheless, a particular product that enables her to actually get a little bit more engagement out of the children in the meetings, okay? And this was working really, really well. It's a free version, so I did a few checks, et cetera. And in the process of the DTAC, I was able to figure out that um, our comms team and our HR team would really benefit from this particular product as well. So it's something that because we're doing it right from the beginning, we can highlight it to them. Is there a data that they'd like us to collect and provide for them and then checks that we can do on their behalf in advance of a governance approval process? And me being aware of this right from the beginning, I'm not going to catch it every single time, but as long as the, the mindset is there, it means that our governance team can actually really focus on their key um, specialities 
societies and knowing that we've already just we've really thought about um contacts in different um departments and um organizations to make sure that we are trying to be as integrated as possible and also thinking about it long term down the line as well and yes for older systems <laughs> that have been around for quite a long time um, those are things that um are obviously our experts can work on but going forward um i can make sure that we are really caring about um integration between um new products that we're actually getting as well and it's something that's always at the back of our minds isaac yeah i i think you know john just talked touched on the tie um yeah it's called the trust integration engine and, and john just touched on it briefly um i, I work with a gentleman and He's one of those people where for everything you do, he would come back and ask you, do we have a compliance checklist? Where's the compliance checklist? Where's this? Have you ticked it? If it's not ticked, there's no go, go live, go live. We don't have that. He's one of those people that's very anal about that. And what that kind of does for you sometimes is that at the back of your head, every time you're thinking about a new solution, you are thinking to yourself, is this guy going to nag me about something that I should or shouldn't do or should have done? And in terms of that, you start to think globally about things like the trust integration engine. Do we have the codes to implement this? Are there other services that will be impacted by this? Are there things that we have missed that we should be asking? Who's responsible? Do we have assurance from the organization to go ahead with this? Do we have the documentation that aligns with this? So there is always a checklist of a go, no go, go live situation running at the back of your head for every single thing you do because you know you have this thing waiting behind you, just ready to chase you on that. So for the work um, Yaya is doing now, I think when you think about all the different things that all the different systems you're involved in, it's worth checking for every single one of them. Have I ticked all the boxes for them as individual systems and then as a collective? And then ensuring that where there are gaps, are there things, one, can they be merged? Two, can they be integrated? Three, can they be excluded? I think that is the behind it. And once you have had that agreement with all the different stakeholders in the organization, it is at that point you put your compliance checklist together, knowing that people have to sign off on it before you start to implement. Otherwise, you will get to your implementation. Something will change. The scope will creep. And the first thing they will tell you is, but you didn't ask that. No, that didn't exist at the time. Again, Dika, actions have changed. Now you need to go back to the drawing board. But this is kind of some of the key things you need to put in, you know, on the forefront of what you're doing in order to achieve where you're going to go. It's just my thoughts and piece of advice on your question. That's great. Thank you. Um, so the next question that you had was, what are the key considerations that need to be taken when implementing new workforce? I think that's been touched on a little bit, but do you want to um, give where does this question come from? I don't, I don't want to take up too much time on that. It's, it's very simple, I, you know, about the compliance checks and these sort of things. They're, they're great pieces of advice. And I think um, not only for myself or anyone else who's doing implementation is a key part of their, you know, uh, fundamentals. Um, but yeah, you know, the, 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 the question I kind of have, you know, I'll kind of flip the question a bit. 
is around, you know, if we do decide at some point when we've done our evaluation and the process mapping and how that benefits or doesn't benefit certain departments or stakeholders, if we come to find that, you know, it's probably better to find a solution uh, which is more end-to-end, so it does all of the above, rather than trying to get everyone to agree that we're going to build this connector between this one and this one and this one and then have a loop of communication. Does that kind of raise a question? And this has been discussed many times, you know, amongst senior managers around the monopoly of certain vendors um, having that monopoly of a product on the market. Um, and what's your thoughts on that? I mean, do we care as as healthcare providers that a particular company or, or you know a third party supplier has a monopoly when really in this current you know time they have the answer to what we need and therefore shouldn't even be a consideration because at, at the end of the day we want to deliver patient care we want to empower our staff we want to make sure that their experience as you know employees is is one that it's streamlined and um, you know uh, one that's easy enough for them to get on with what they need to do John what are your thoughts um, that's a really, really good point. Um, I think for me, the key consideration I place on my role is to be as unbiased as possible. Okay. Now I can control the new stuff coming in. And of course I'm in charge of the legacy DTAC, et cetera, but in terms of new products, I'm obviously keenly aware of who the product owners are, not just the visible product owners, but also their investors, etc. That's something that I generally care about. Um, they don't know I do these checks. Well, they will, probably will now, but <laughs> but it is something that I do look into and make sure that I'm uh, acutely aware of. Um, in terms of um, the current monopolies that exist, I don't think we're ever going to have a perfect system. Um, but I think in regards to those of us in corporate who work in purchasing and who work in business management, um, we have to be as ethical as possible in the decisions that we do make, okay? Um, and we also have to trust that our directors and leaders also have um, not just their heart in the right place, but also their intentions in the right place as well. Um, I have seen, organ- not the NHS, I have seen organisations where um, backhanders and um, corporate gifts, etc., have had detrimental effects on customer experience, staff um, experience, um, and being able to actually do their jobs as effectively as possible. And nothing ever happens as a result of that. You know, um, the, the people that have to struggle carry on struggling. And the the fixes that need to be put in place never come about. So the good thing about the NHS is that because it's a, for want of a better phrase, not-profit organisation, we have um, the the advantage of having people at the top who have come from a healthcare background, who really do generally care about not just the patients that we're looking after, but also the staff who work underneath them as well. So even though we can't have a perfect system, um, as long as the people who are making certain decisions have the right intentions, I think we can actually make things a lot better in the in the future. It's not something that I think we can fix immediately, but that's also okay. I mean, room for improvement is always a good thing in my book to be honest. But yeah, I think you raise a very valid point that I think a lot of people who are going to be listening need to go away and think about as well, because it's, um, if we don't, if we don't have answers quickly for a lot of our key um, issues and challenges that we have in the NHS, um, there will be exponential effects of that with the advancement of technology, AI, etc. as we go down the line. So yeah. 
I don't think it's that complex, to be honest. Um, the challenge you have with new solutions is that people come to a debate for a new solution prejudiced. They already know where they want to go. So they're not coming to you because they, they are trying to solve a problem. They come to you because they've already solved the problem in their heads. This solution, we've been to a conference. Someone said the solution is brilliant. I've looked at it. It looks really nice. Let's get it. That is the problem. It's not bias. It's not, you know, backhanded. It's not, it's not all of that. It's just, especially when it comes to clinicians. Clinicians come into it already prejudiced because they've seen something that does what they like. But what they forget is that from a digital perspective, I've put my best foot forward and I've not told you the, uh, the implication of trying to implement that solution. So as far as they know, just get me the solution and it will solve all of my problems. Don't forget, clinicians are just looking for the quickest way to get from point A to B so that they can spend their expertise doing what they need to do. In terms of solution, I strongly believe that there is a relationship that always needs to be built between the digital colleagues, the financial colleagues, the operational colleagues, and the clinical colleagues. They should be able to sit together in a room, unbiased of what you think but be able to go through a series of checklists that meet all four criteria. It is fit for purpose. Again, this is why the five business case model was invented, so that it could meet commercial criteria, economic criteria, strategic criteria. So there is that. But I think a lot of us who are skilled in business plan writing can write a business plan to meet any five business case because we know what we're looking for. But the challenge is this. It comes back to your first point, Yaya. What are you looking for the solution to do? Or why do we need it? If we take that approach to everything, then it means that we're just going to go out there as we do a pin in the market to see what's in the market. The responses that come back should come back and say, yes, we can deliver what you say. Um, and then we will evaluate that based on one, your experience, two, your presence in the market, three, the outcomes that you've done, and then weigh these responses based on that. So clean business case, clean options appraisal, clean ITT will give you the desired solution. As I said, the challenge we have is that the changes in the NHS and the changes in legislation and changes in things kind of cause its own new problems. I'm dealing with a project at the moment where we're trying to implement LFPSCs as the learning from patient safety experience into the mix. While the suppliers are trying to give us a solution ready to put this in place, the NHS England keeps changing the criteria, changing the, cri the taxonomy. So those changes, with those changes, you always have a moving feast. And in order to minimize that, it always has to be a caption in time being able to deal with that as a caption in time based on core requirements at the time to deliver a solution. If that changes, it should go through change control. Again, back to the original conversation about having a clean relationship with your suppliers so that they are with you to adapt and adopt new systems or new procedures when we move forward. Whether they have a monopoly or not, that shouldn't be our problem. The problem is, can they give me what I want at the price I want it, and will it deliver value for me? And will my clinicians and my users be happy to use it? If the answer to all of that is yes, I really shouldn't care. If you apply for a job, you really don't apply with your name in it. You just put your qualification. 
We don't want to know your name. If you can do the job, then you can do the job and you're hired. It's the same process. And I think that's really how we need to look at it. Thank you. Yaya, did that answer your question? Have you got anything else to add? No, thank you. I think it it kind of confirms all the things and the things I want to say, you know, back. But it's sometimes you feel like you're one single voice. And whenever you come forward with that proposal to say, why don't we just use one provider? Because they've already been with us and we've got a good relationship with us and, and they're doing two thirds of this, you know, solving two thirds of our problems. And they're, you know, presenting us with another option to take that. Why don't we just continue with them? And sometimes the, the you know, the kind of kickback is always, well, you know, you, we've got all these other systems and we don't want to give a monopoly here or, you know, give up the monopoly. So it's, it's, it's like I feel they're more of a obstacle than, you know, finding the the, the solution at, at any given time. And, and at, at the current time uh, or present situation we're in as a trust, it's, it's very crucial that we use the opportunity we have to see what the problem is and and, and find that solution as quickly as possible. I'll just add to that, that there is a flip side to that scenario, though, which is if for any reason you decide to quit the contract because you suddenly found something better, you know, they've got you, you know, where it's going to hurt because it means that if they withdraw their solutions and you can, um, you can be in big trouble. But I think that's where contract clauses comes in, into the exit clauses, extension clauses, just to buffer your solution to give you enough time but it's also about monitoring monitoring those contracts especially those kind of critical contracts to ensure that you are working within your confined period and that the get out clauses are sensible in that instance and in the sense that you're not going to make any rapid or sudden changes but this is where the innovation element comes into place and that relationship with your suppliers are there However, having said that, that's the way to mitigate the monopoly through the DTAC process, through the contracts in place, through the frameworks that are used, and the get-out-of-jail clauses and all those things in place, making sure that those contracts are reviewed 10 times over if you have to with the legal team, just to make sure that when it does come to that point, you have enough time to switch systems um, and avoid being... you get into that trouble when you don't have your contracts in place and they suddenly say, we're raising the prices and you don't have a a clause in your contract that says for the next five years, you can't raise the price. Or um, even if you raise the price, you can only raise it to this cap. If you don't have those kind of clauses in place in your contract, which is why we always recommend use frameworks. If you don't have that in place, then you get into those kind of challenges. Brilliant. Thank you all for those questions. So before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thank you so much to all of our guests for sharing their thoughts. They have been John, Isaac and Yaya. If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, please feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone that you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. My name's Annabelle and you can find me on LinkedIn or visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash NHS. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you very much for listening.